what I plan to do tonight is finish Joshua, and I do not plan to read every line of the rest of Joshua. As I said last time, we're going to skip the real estate section. That's really important to Israel, and there isn't a lot homiletic to talk about, so we're going past that. Then we're going to start in chapter 22, where we're going to do the separation of the eastern and the western tribes. Then I'm going to go down to the renewal of the covenant and to the death of Joshua. And then I'm going to skip forward to the second chapter in Judges. There's two and a half tribes that are over on the east bank of the Jordan, which is modern Jordan. And that's actually where we're going to start. They get most everything conquered, or as much conquered as they're going to get under Joshua. They fall short of the full promise that God made, but they're done with the conquest uh, under Joshua. And so at that point, you had the two and a half tribes, Reuben and Gad, decided that they wanted to take their land on the east side of the Jordan. And you all remember the incident where Moses then takes a stripe off of them and says, are you going to cause us to spend another 40 years in the wilderness by not going in and taking the land that God promised? And they said, no, 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 no. We'll go over with you and we will fight with everybody else. And when everybody's got their land and we've conquered all the enemy, then we would like to have this area on the eastern side as our portion. And Moses said, sure. And he also then split the tribe of Manasseh. So you got half of Manasseh is on the east bank and the other half of Manasseh is on the west bank. And all of the commentators that I have read say a couple of things. Thing one is Manasseh is a very large tribe. So certainly giving them that much land is very appropriate. But the other part is he wanted to maintain tribal ties across the river so that they wouldn't get separated. And in fact, that's going to be the subject of chapter 22, where we're going to start tonight. Well, let's go ahead and read it. We're now down to Joshua 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And you remember from uh, the Torah that the half-tribe of Manasseh did not make any request to stay on the East Bank. This is something that either Moses or Joshua has set up. It was not based on a request by the two tribes. Uh, Reuben and Gad are the only two that said they wanted to. So at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites of Gaddis and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. You have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave to you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and walk in all his ways and keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. So verse 7. Now to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. Bashan, as I think you all know, is on the northern 
end of the east side of the Jordan. It's what's the Golan Heights today, that area. To the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and half tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. So one of the things that's obviously happened is they have gone through and conquered all the Canaanite tribes. They have taken all their stuff, which is flocks, herds, clothing, gold, silver, whatever, and that has been divided. So the two and a half tribes that are moving over to the east are taking with them a good chunk of the spoil, which is absolutely appropriate, seeing as how they were an integral part of the conquest. So now down to verse 10, 22:10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is, the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the tribe of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. One of the outdoor sports that Israel will engage in is civil war. They do it very frequently. And this would have been the first. Essentially, their attitude is, gee, we released these guys, we sent them home, and the first thing they do is they build an altar in competition with the tabernacle, which is at Shechem. And Moses explicitly said that there's only one place that you're going to sacrifice, and that's wherever I put my name and put my tent. So for them to go across the river, which is a separation, and then immediately set up an altar, smacks to the rest of Israel as, I guess you're not part of us anymore. And by the way, you all know your history. That's exactly what happens when the kingdom is divided from north to south after the death of Solomon. The temple was in the south. So Rehoboam says, huh, if the people keep going down and making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple down there, their loyalties are going to be divided. And at some point, we're going to reunite and I'm going to lose my kingdom. So what he did is he set up competing altars, if you will, at Bethel and at Dan in Lachish. The idea was we will keep all the feasts of the Lord, but we'll do them in our land, and the southern kingdom will do them in their land. And so that's what the rest of Israel thinks is about to happen. And as I say, it does in fact happen after the death of Solomon. So verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Again, you all know your history. Phinehas is a zealot. Phinehas is one who does not 
take lightly to people disrespecting God. He is one that does not take lightly to people disrespecting the tabernacle. And so if you're sending Phineas, you are sending someone who is taking this very seriously. And whatever Phineas decides or finds out, Phineas will do whatever Phineas thinks necessary. So you're you're sending a hard head and a zealot, if you will. And I think that's probably on purpose. So verse 15. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? So they are seeing this as rebellion. 17. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord. So you all remember the incident where Phineas made a name for himself, started getting ink for himself in the Bible. You had the Midianite women were seducing the Israelite men, and Phineas didn't take kindly to that and speared a brace of them. An Israelite man and a Canaanite woman with one spear stroke. And that's sort of how he got his position, if you will. I mean, he was always going to be a priest since he's a grandson of Aaron, but that's how he really made his name. And so what he's saying is, guys, remember the plague that happened when we did this the last time. We are not going to allow a plague to come upon Israel again. And the idea here is if part of Israel sins, it's very likely that a plague will come upon the whole nation. So part of this is hey, wait a minute, you guys can't do that. But the other part of it is self-defense. In other words, if we let you get away with this, there's every possibility that the plague that lands on Israel will include us also. One of the things that I am very fond of saying is when a nation goes into sin and degradation and God finally has it right up to here with their behavior and decides to deal with them, He takes out the righteous as well as the guilty. My favorite example is Daniel. Daniel was a righteous man. Got a whole book in the Bible named after him. I don't have a book in the Bible named after me. But Daniel went and lived in Babylon. And so when Israel went to Babylon, Daniel went right along with him, even though Daniel was personally righteous. So the idea of paying attention to The moral state of a nation is a matter of self-defense. And a lot of the modern church's live-and-let-live attitude, I think, is very foolish. should be contending for, for righteousness, because if we go down, we all go down, not just the wicked. Verse 19, But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. So what he's saying is if if the land is so polluted that you feel that you need to set up an altar and make sacrifice to get the land cleaned up, then pick yourselves up and come on over to our side because we got the only authorized altar. 20. Did not Achan, the son of Zerach, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So the idea here is 
Spiritual purity is a matter of self-defense for those who are not engaging in immorality. 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. So if, in fact, we are in rebellion and we are building a competing altar, then do not spare us. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No. But we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what had you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? So we've got a river between us. And there is a natural tendency then to separate into two people. You guys got the temple. We have this fear that over time, your people will say, you are not part of us. You can't come and worship at our temple. You are some other country. And so what they're doing is they're making this altar as a memorial sign to connect the two halves, but not for purposes of actually doing sacrifice. So it's a monument, if you will. It is not a functional altar. 26, therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God, which stands before his tabernacle. So the idea here is we absolutely agree there is only one authorized altar, and that's the one that stands in front of the tabernacle. And all this is is a monument so that it looks like the altar in front of the tabernacle so your children and our children can look at it and say, ah, our ancestors both worshipped the same way. Because we have this copy of the altar that you have. You can see it looks just like yours. So we are one people and we both worship the same way. And you cannot tell us in the future that we can't come and worship at your altar. 30. When Phineas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, and the heads of the families of Israel who were with them, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. So we accept your explanation, and we agree that it is good. Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel. 
and brought back word to them, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar of witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So now, as I said, I'm not going to read everything in the remaining book. I'm going to go from here to the renewal of the covenant, and then from the renewal of the covenant to the death of Joshua, and then I'm going to skip forward and we're going to spend a couple of minutes in the first part of the book of Judges. Okay? And then we will close out the book of Joshua. Now, Joshua is going to give a long speech here in 23. It's a pep talk. Then we're going to go to 24, the covenant renewal at Shechem. And most of that is a recounting of the history of Israel. I am going to skip that because I think everybody here knows the history of Israel. We've been through it many times. Let's go ahead and read 23, skip 24, and then go down to 25. So 23. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, Joshua was old and well advanced in years. Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all of these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribe those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. So what he's saying is two things. The land belongs to you, but we haven't conquered it all yet. You have the nations that remain and the nations that we've destroyed. And they're both still there. And in fact, one of the things that happens is the allotment that Dan is originally given is in the plain to the west of the mountain range and goes out to the Mediterranean Sea. In fact, Dan is unable to hold that. And Dan gets squeezed out by the Philistines and driven north. And so Dan winds up in the very north part of Israel, up around Lachish, because they are unable to drive out the Philistines who are on the coast. So what Joshua is saying here is, my time is over. I've divided up the land, but there's some of it that you're still going to have to take. And you remember one of the things that God said is, I will drive the enemy out before you, but I will not drive the enemy out before you so fast that the land becomes empty and returns to virgin status and full of wild animals and so forth, I will drive them out gradually as your population increases. And one of the things that Joshua started with is at the end of Deuteronomy and the beginning of Joshua, Joshua was told a number of times by God, by Moses, and by the tribal leaders to be strong and of good courage. The deal there is Joshua has a promise from God that he will fight for them. But in order for that promise to kick in, you have to stand up and put on your sword and start marching forward against whoever your enemy is. Until you get up and put on your sword and start marching, God will not drive them out. God is not just going to say, all right, poosh, all right, get out of the way. My people want your land there. 
that's not going to happen. You have to be strong and of good courage. So that's what happened to Dan, is they got squeezed out. They were either unable or unwilling to do what was necessary for God's promises to kick in. Verse 5, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. Notice, push them back before you. You have to advance. He's not just going to push them back while you sit in a lawn chair and watch. It's not the way it works. So the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the name of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. So the idea here is there are still various ites in the land. Canaanites, Jebusites, Hittites, they're still there. They're not all gone. So what he's saying is, as you get more populous, you need to advance and push them out. And in the meantime, what you don't want to do is you don't want to study their religion. And you don't want to intermarry, because that will mess you up. Verse 9. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out those nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And again, this idea of thorns in the flesh, it also comes up in the Torah. You all remember Paul talks about having a thorn in the flesh and asking God to take it away, and God says no. And you will find all sorts of Christian commentators who will speculate what the thorn in the flesh is. Many of them will go to Paul has some kind of a disease, and specifically the most commonly speculated one is he's got desert blindness, and God didn't heal Paul. God said, my grace is sufficient for you, I'm not going to heal you. You just have to put up with this affliction. And so sometimes God decides not to heal people. I will gently suggest that that's nonsense. If you go back to the principle of expositional constancy, the first place that thorns in the flesh shows up is in the Torah and, and in Joshua, and it talks about it in the context of people. If you don't get rid of these people, they're going to be thorns in your flesh. It doesn't all of a sudden change in the context of Paul to being some mysterious disease that God doesn't see fit to heal. My belief is that the thorn in his flesh is the subject of the book of Galatians. Paul has gone and planted a church, and he's taught them the message of Messiah and of grace and all that kind of stuff, and he left. And coming in behind him are messianic Jews of the circumcision party. And they tell them, yeah, 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 we know what this guy Paul says, but let us tell you what you really got to do. And Paul, in the letter of Galatians, is just indignant. And I think that the thorn in his flesh are these messianic Jews of the circumcision party who are going along behind him and trying to undo what he has done. 
he asked God to get rid of it for him, and God says, nope, you need to figure this out yourself, Buck. So verse 14, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your heart and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. So what he's saying, obviously, is God made some promises to you through Moses. You have now seen in your own experience that all of those promises have been kept. And what he's reminding them of is, for example, Deuteronomy 28, which is the blessings and cursings chapter. And he's saying, just as God has been faithful to keep his promises, so also will God be faithful to keep the curses if you commit spiritual adultery. God regards idol worship as spiritual adultery. The book of Hosea, for example, makes that abundantly clear. And so if you are unfaithful to the Lord your God, understand that the other half of the covenant will kick in and he will be just as faithful with that part of the covenant as he has been with the part that's good for you. So now we have down in 24, renewal of the covenant and I say I'm going to skip that because mostly that is a recitation of the history of Israel. Joshua starting back with Terah, Abraham's father gives a history of Israel up to that point. There isn't anything particularly homiletic in there. Uh, 24.14 Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't know how long the conquest of the land took. It was not 20 minutes. It's a considerable amount of time that this conquest took. One of the things to keep in mind as you're reading this charge that Joshua gives these people is everybody there grew up in the wilderness. They spent 40 years in the wilderness and the generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. So everybody here who was an adult grew up in the wilderness, which meant that they had the very presence of God in the midst of the camp. They had the pillar of fire by night and they had the cloud by day. They had fire that would fall down from the heaven. They had quail that would rain down. They had manna from heaven. They had water from the rock. That's the spiritual regime that all of them had grown up in. They have now moved out of that spiritual regime into what I call a type two existence, where they got to plant, they got to fight enemies, they got to smelt, or they got to do trade, they got to do all the stuff that everybody else in the world has to do. They no longer get up and step outside of their tent and scoop up breakfast. You've got to go out and you've got to plant wheat, and then you've got to harvest the wheat, you've got to grind the wheat, you've got to make bread, you've got to do all the stuff that everybody else does. It is a very natural thing for you to look around and say, you guys have been living here for a long time and you're really successful. How do you do it? 
anybody a fisherman here? When you go to a new river, you walk up and you find somebody that's already fishing there. What, what are they biting on here? I used to fish back east in New York. And I came out to the west and was fishing in Montana, and none of my flies worked. And I had to go find somebody. Said, what do they bite here on the big whole river? And the guy said, oh, yeah, you need this. And he gave me a, something. I don't remember what it was. And I started catching fish. So Israel is moving into this new place. And it's very natural then to look around to the people who live there and say, what grows here? What do you do? How do you get along in this new place? And what Joshua is saying is don't do that. Do not do that. Because what's going to wind up happening is you're going to wind up following their gods. Because they're going to tell you things like, well, in order to get wheat, what you got to do is you got to make a sacrifice to this god, and it's got to be about this time or you won't get any rain, and, and on and on and on. They will tell you what they have been doing, and what Joshua is saying is don't do that. Even though it is the most natural thing in the world, and you guys have got no experience whatsoever with agriculture, with trade, with smelting, with any of that kind of stuff. So you're starting off at ground zero, but don't go to the locals and ask for help. You guys got to choose who you're going to follow. Now, God has been faithful to you, but you're now going to be tempted. It is not going to be the case that God is not going to be the only game in town. And you're going to be tempted. And what I'm saying is, if you follow that temptation and you give in to the temptation to worship other gods, then the other half of God's promises are going to kick in, and those are the curses. Verse 16, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sin. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. So how many times have they said they will serve the Lord? Three. And Joshua has led them into that three times. Verse 23. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Notice that the stone is a witness. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day. The stone is the witness. The stone has the Torah written on it. It is a stone of witness, and it's got the Torah written on it. 
After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasurah, which is south and west of Shechem, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried him at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance to the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given to him in the hill country of Ephraim. Right, so there's the end of Joshua. Now let's swing down to Judges, and I think I want to be in chapter 2. There's some conquest stuff there. You have the conquest of Hebron under Caleb and his younger brother. There's a bunch of historical stuff that I don't intend to go through. I want to skip down to verse 2-6. And now we are back with Joshua still alive. When Joshua dismissed the people... The people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnahurus, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation who were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So the reason I skipped down to here is I made this big deal about the fact that the entire nation who had conquered the land grew up in the wilderness. They had an intimate physical knowledge of God. There was no question in anybody's mind that God was there, he was in the middle of the camp, he was a very presence with them. And when they then swept through the land, they didn't take a lot of faith to believe that God was going to do the things that he promised to do because they'd grown up with him. They could, you know, they could look to the middle of the camp and there was a pillar of fire. That generation dies. And now they're in a different spiritual regime. In the regime that they're in, God is not so overt. There's still a connection between Israel's behavior and the land. So when Israel behaves and is doing well, there's rain and there's abundant crops and all that kind of thing. When Israel goes into idolatry and, and sin, the rain gets shut off. So the land very much responds to their spiritual condition, but it isn't the same kind of thing. You don't have fire falling from heaven when somebody rebels. So what then happens in that next generation that doesn't have this personal, direct experience of the presence of God is they drift. And they drift off into worship of the local gods. And I'm not going to go through the book of Judges. You've all been through it. And you have this up and down cycle of the nation on the book of Judges. And they'll go along and they'll start worshiping the balls and they'll go all over the place and some judge will rise up and grab them by the stacking swivel and get them all back together and things will be fine for two or three decades and then that judge will die and they'll drift off again, which 
to me, is a testament to just how frail we are. When we were in Bethel, the elders of Bethel got us together at the end of our trip there, and they said, we need some advice. The generation that founded this place is dying, and we have a new generation growing up. And what we are concerned about, and they took us right to this passage in Joshua, is will the generation that follows continue the work we've started and continue to follow the Lord the way we have? A couple hour discussion about it. So this is a very real problem. We have one generation, everybody's gung-ho and devout for the Lord and you raise your children and then the world gets a hold of them and off they go. And sometimes it takes a while to come back. Every generation has to find it for themselves is what it amounts to.